You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, friends, it's your disabled... Well, let's try that out again. Hey there, friends, it's your favorite disabled person on the internet. Hello, it's Andrew Grizzly here, very quickly popping in to say that on top of this amazing podcast that you listen to every other week, I want to let you know of a new little side hustle that I've created for myself, and I wanted to invite you to partake in if you so choose. One of the things that I do for my family every year on their birthdays is I sing them a Marilyn Monroe-type happy birthday song. kind of goes like this. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Okay, you get the idea. So it's like that. And I, I decided to do it for sale, and I wanted to send you all a sexy, breathy, Marilyn Monroe-esque birthday message, or any kind of message that you want, whether it be inspirational, whether it be motivational, whether it be a funny message for me. So I would love to invite you, if you wanted to get a unique, fun gift for yourself or for someone else, you can pop over to paypal.com, sorry, paypal.me, paypal.me slash Andrew Gerza, and give me 10 bucks and I'll send you a hilarious message gift for your friends, for yourself, for whoever you like. And if you want me to do it in a breathy Marilyn Monroe voice, I will do that for you. But I just thought I would throw this out on the podcast and offer that to you. So send me an email at andrew at com, and let me know if you want it, what kind of message you want, and I will make that for you right here in my home studio from your favorite disabled person, me, Andrew Gerza. Thanks, friends. Get yours today. Bye. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clonawilly or clonapussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns so if you want to pick up your own clone a willy or clone a pussy kit right now head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code darkpod that's d-a-r-k-p-o-d at checkout right now and remember this is a deal that cannot be cloned
Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your deliciously disabled daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let us get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started, shall we? Friends, it has been quite the week for me as I recover from COVID-19. I'm feeling better, but wow, that really took me out, and I didn't feel good. And, you know, as a disabled and immunocompromised person, I really urge you to get your shots, and to if you're able to get your shots, please do, and continue to self-isolate, because COVID is not fun. And so I, I, I'm now having had it, I'm negative now, but it's been quite the week for me, and so... For all of you with disabilities who are immunocompromised and who are not immunocompromised also, please keep wearing your masks and please care about disabled people. But I'm on the mend now. I feel a little bit better, but wow, it's been quite the week. I've never napped more than I napped this week with COVID. But let's get back to the show and enough of my rambling and get on with a new Disability After Dark. On the show today, I speak with my friend Jeremy Osland, who talks to us about his experience being autistic and queer, and how he sees his autism as a superpower. I love learning about the way other people with disabilities navigate their disabilities, and how they compartmentalize their disabilities and learn about the world, and I love the way that Jeremy talks about his disabilities, and I love that it's a different view from how I might see being disabled, and the way he talks about his autism being a superpower is an important distinction for him, and I love that we that I got to share in that knowledge with him and learn from him in that way. I, lo- I also love how we talk about queerness and disability in this episode a lot, and queerness and autism, and all those things, plus so much more. And I hope you enjoyed the episode with my friend, Jeremy Osland, right now on a brand new Disability After Dark. Jeremy Osland, hello. Hi, how are you, Zay? Good, how are you? Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, I'm I so excited. You, I know. I heard from you five seconds ago that it's your first podcast <laughs> ever. Yes, sir. I feel quite honored to be your first podcast ever. This is, of course, the best podcast on the internet, so you've come to the right place. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I, um, you know, it's been a long time i'm coming we've been talking for years i'm excited to finally uh be on and talk a bit about me and you and the world around us and all the things i also i love people can't see this but i can see where you're like your place a little bit very nice it looks very like cozy there oh thanks yeah you know i just moved in a few days ago and it's both our corporate offices and my live space so in order to make sure this is our living room i'll give you a quick walk around tour this will eventually be the gallery art hallway. So you have all the art on the floor and it leads like to that. 
Yeah, it leads to my indoor yard, as I call it. So you have about 15 different types of plants that act as like a natural air filter. Big old bathroom. And it's all ADA accessible. Maybe not so much this part, but if I go to the front... Cool, so if I ever visit you and your person in Oregon, if I ever have a reason to be there, I can pee in your bathroom. Girl, I got you. Oh, wow, look at that. That's really, that is actually really accessible. That's, <laughs> yes, I gotta I'm not kidding. I got you. I got, it's I made pretty sure. great. Yeah, Hidden Oasis is going to be incredible. It's a space to come and relax and get away from the tensions of the world, particularly from over uh, stimulation, anxiety, and panic. So we want to make sure that it's as democratic and accessible for everybody. So it's first I like floor. That. Yeah, first floor, ADA, contactless, and able to be booked for you and uh, complimentary your um, caregiver or any kind of nurse or assistant or family member. That's really that's really cool. So yeah. let's back up first because people are like, so we know we know that Jeremy's on the show, but who is he and why is he there? So can you um, introduce yourself to the audience a bit? Tell us a bit about who you are, what you do. Yeah, um, my name's Jeremy. <laughs> I am. Uh, I guess a late stage bloomer learning that I was autistic uh, about three years ago, which has been a game changer for my life and has allowed me to bloom in my career as an entrepreneur, which I've done since I was about eight years old. (laughs) Um, And now with this knowledge, I am sort of this complete person and understand a lot more how to interact with the world. Uh, Now I'm more ready to talk about it and talk about my experiences as a gay man, as an entrepreneur, um, as a human, <laughs> as a person existing on this world with a little bit more knowledge and enlightenment about who they are. Um, and yeah, I like to cook a lot. <laughs> and I like to, you know, I see open you my own on, businesses. I see, on, I see you on Facebook doing all the cooking and the baking. And I'm like, oh man, I wish I was closer because I would be, first of all, I would be... Uh, eating all your food all the time because it looks really good and I'm quite jealous. So um, maybe that, in the future there will be, you know, a how to cook with me program and I, you can be on it. It'd be wonderful. Yeah. Or if ever you do like a Toronto pop-up of your, of your business, then like, that would be great. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if all things go well, my plan is to have uh, not a cooking business, but hidden oasis everywhere. And I think you would be, one of our first people to visit. I would, that'd be, that'd be so fun. Um, so you've kind of told us a little bit about what your disabilities are, but can you share with us again, like, what are your disabilities? But more importantly, how do they impact your day-to-day life? And how would you describe being disabled to someone listening? It's so interesting because this concept of disability to me is new, right? I never thought of myself as a disabled person. I just always thought of myself as a weird person, as somebody who was different or didn't understand the world. And I, and that was scary. That was a place, you know, a place of confusion, loss of, of wonderment. Right. And this knowledge and learning of this diagnosis, which very complicated and it's a much longer story, I was diagnosed as a child, but I had a lack of quality care and a lack of fundamental family being. 
uh, which led to me never being told. And it wasn't until later in life when I, yeah, when I approached my uh, grandmother, who I hadn't talked to in, you know, really 18 years and told her, I think there might be something different about me. She sort of clued me into the fact that, that I was diagnosed with something, but she doesn't know or remember. She's, she's up there. She's in her eighties. And, you know, I do believe that she doesn't know, or maybe even back then, because it was the mid nineties, they just didn't understand what was going on. Right. Yeah. So being diagnosed for me has been a little bit, I, I don't think of it as a disability. I actually think of it more of as a superpower. Um, it's allowed me to hone in on understand what I need to do and who I need to be, but more importantly, who, how to surround myself with the correct type of community to make me feel safe and make me feel ready and supported to actually use these superpowers and move forward. So, you know, being autistic for me had, or being, you know, I guess finally diagnosed, you know, it's, it's not a disability. It's a way for me to understand myself more. Right. And what I've done with this knowledge is I've said to the people around me, especially the people who are coming into my life currently and are new in my life, I'm able to present them with this great understanding of like, Hey, I'm neurodivergent. I'm never going to be like you. And that's okay. You know what? You're different than me. And sometimes I actually feel bad for you because my, my neurodiversity comes with all these really cool things. I hear really well. I have, you know, so basically what you're saying is you're Spider-Man and we should all, well, you know what? All I'm saying is stop looking at people with disabilities as the, it's that otherism, right? Stop looking at people with disabilities as someone who can't participate and start looking at the things that they have as their strengths. And why don't we just focus on that? Because, you know, you can't walk, you know, there's many things that you can't do. Really? But I, I don't, I know it's I weird. Know, I, I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know if anyone ever told you this, Andrew, but you may not, you may be in a wheelchair for a while. Right. What? Just for a while, just for a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe even like one day. But what That's I think cool. is really interesting, you have all these other talents, right? You have all these other amazing things about you to focus on. And if your brain and body aren't focused on your legs and your arms, it has all these other times to think and to work on the logic of the world. And in those things, those are superpowers, right? And if we focus on yeah. those, we're no longer we're not disabled, right? We're just as able as other people. Maybe not in our bodies. Maybe I have issues in my mind, but the things that I get on the other side of that are are really powerful. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, there's parts of that that I agree with and there's other parts of that because for me, disability and being disabled and calling that and naming it what it is for me, only for me, doesn't have to be for you. But for me, it's like something that I find really powerful to be like, yes, I'm a disabled oh. person. And yeah, like that's important that we recognize that. Well, and I think that anything when it comes to identity and owning, uh, especially thing, because dis- I think to say, like, I guess for me, disability has been thought of as like a slur and it shouldn't. And my point is, yeah. and we're on, I think we're truly on the same page in that idea is I call my disability a superpower because I don't want people to look at me and say, oh, you're autistic. You know, oh, that sucks. Because for me, I look at it and go, you know what? I, for the first time in 36 years, know who I am, know what I need and know how I need to get there, which makes me so much more powerful than everyone else. And your identity and my identity have a similar path or not the same. And I love that we get to be two different people while still strengthening and enjoying the same goal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, Because, you know, for me, like, and I've talked to a lot of people on this show who said the same thing, like, oh, I don't know if I see myself as disabled. And I, I would gently be like, well, what if you were, though? Can we find a way to make it, like, a positive thing? And I totally get where you're coming from about the the negative, the, the connotations of what disability means. For me, it's yeah. like, fuck it. Let's just, let's throw all those connotations out and just be, how it be what it is. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's also that kind of the line and I'm learning, which is really cool, right? I'm, I, I might be 36 years old in this body, but I'm only three years old as an autistic person as, because I've only known I'm autistic for three years. I've only started yeah. researching, studying, talking to a therapist, you know, looking for, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, learning all sorts of things about myself that I never knew before. So it's almost like a, for me, a third puberty because being gay was a second puberty and I get to learn this person, right? For you, your body has been your body. And, you know, it's so outwardly facing that you get to own that. For me, for me, it's a little bit more of a shade of gray, I think, for how I come out to the world in that way and how I present myself. Yeah, yeah. You you have kind of like, not that autism is necessarily an invisible disability, but it's more hidden than, say, mine. So you have to, you as somebody with it, with that disability would have to, to, like something you said earlier really struck me when you were like, you know, I have to spend my time trying to mimic what I see other people do. And while I don't have autism, I definitely have neurodivergence. And I feel that I feel really similar in that way. Like I've spent most of my life, like 38 years, like watching other people do stuff and be like, well, they're doing that. I guess I should too. And maybe then I'll be included. And maybe then they'll right. like, and like, and I, as I get older, I keep realizing that no matter how much I mimic somebody, like I'm, not, I'm never going to fit. So I'm just like, Oh yeah. fuck. I just, I won't fit. Well, but and isn't there a strength to that? Because the pain that comes with that first realization when you're like, or that first trial of like, oh, well, if I pretend to be like you, you'll like me. And then they still don't, or they still treat you in a way that makes you feel unwanted or in, or in a way that is ableist or otherist that ends up making you hurt. And in this knowledge of realizing like, hey, I'm a disabled person. I'm an autistic person. I am this person. That voice for me has been everything it's just been everything it's changed my life i mean that's i'm so happy to hear that i would gently nudge you to be like you should totally still call it a superpower but i would also be like say disabled more say it a bunch okay. more in your okay. in your like day today and you I might find i mean you might be like oh no that sucks for not doing it but you might you might find that like it takes the pain out of the word because you said it a bunch you've applied it to yourself you know that it doesn't mean that you can't do everything, but it does mean there are limitations. What I love about disabled is that it clearly states for people, there's definitely shit that I can't do. Like, I'm never going to run a marathon. I don't know if you know this, but I'm never going to run a marathon. But I am going to be a badass. I probably so, won't either. <laughs> yeah. So, but it starts to give you like a different way of looking at the word. And it might transform the word for you, maybe. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's exactly why discourse in conversation is important, right? Because I now have a, a, a new community that I get to learn from and have mentors from. And that's something that I've missed my whole life. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I hope that I, I hope that my little nugget of possibility can, uh, can help you. 
feel I'm sure there will be I'm sure there will be many, many more. <laughs> I mean, I have I have many nuggets of wisdom. Not that they're all the best, but I try, I try. Um so one of the things that I want to ask you about, because I know a lot of people that I speak to with autism, and my brother actually just was diagnosed as autistic himself. So a lot of people that I talk to say to me, like, oh, you know, I, I info dump a lot of my favorite things. Like I had somebody who I spoke to a few months ago who loves sharks. And so we did a whole episode on why they love sharks. And it was a really fun info dump hour of like their favorite things. So do you find that you have like one thing that you're hyper focused on? I mean, yeah, cooking ends up being, you know, cooking is my art and my passion. I tried to do it for a living for a decade, you know, and just, it wasn't fun as work, but I, you know, I hyper-focus on it in life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me, it's like, definitely not cooking because I can't, but it's, it's like murder mystery and like, you know, like crime stuff i could watch true crime all day every day and i could talk about it all day every day so, i enjoy that quite a bit as well i'm yeah, definitely but, uh, you know this uh oh gosh what, what was i just watching i mean i literally watch all of them that's the problem is <laughs> they all yeah. dateline comes on i'm like okay what is it this week 2020 yeah, yeah, comes like, on what is it this week but humor I, somebody this week. oh man i i feel so bad saying this i cannot remember her name right now but she does like kind of like I believe she's Korean and she does like mukbang crime drama videos where oh, she's like I love eating it. and talking. Oh, I have to look it up so I can tell you by the end of the show. I'll Google it. Yeah. It's Can't. your favorite. It's like your favorite two things together, food and crime. There you go. Exactly. Oh God, I have to look it up because it's going to drive me insane. She's literally on my Facebook videos, but this is one of those things about being autistic is that small detail of a name. I always forget people's names. It's constant. I'll remember you by your everything you do except for your name. <laughs> that, I'm sure that makes being like a entrepreneur super easy for you. Who are you again? Yeah, I, I have to take a lot of notes. There's a lot of videos. Oh, Stephanie Sue. She is amazing. Shout out to Stephanie Sue. Your videos make my life. <laughs> Stephanie, I'll have to get into your stuff. I haven't, I have not, but I will. Yeah, um, she's amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, those are definitely my two big things. And then, you know, in my ultimate search for the questions of life, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of theology, even though I'm not religious. So I love the idea of man-made religion and looking at it from a lens of a like logic based scientist and like this scientific method and trying to understand the gamification of religion and the theory of it is something that really interests me as well. Oh, that's um, cool. I would never have expected that in a million years, but okay, cool. Well, cool. A, as an autistic child, um, my, my, another thing is my parents died when I was young. Um, when I was, oh, it's okay. It happened a long time ago and it wasn't your fault. Uh, but my past is very, uh, a very deeply woven tapestry of, uh, the world trying to knock me down and constantly having to fight against it. And in that, you know, constant fight is where I became the younger man I was and the scrappy young adult I was and then survived New York as a, you know, 28 year old and 29 year old and came to Portland as a 30 year old. Uh, all of those started with, you know, my parents choices as a kid, which led us to being homeless. Uh, I was born without really 
a, a stable home environment and didn't really get into housing or having a family until I was like four, you know? So that also affected my life because when you come from nothing, everything is either alert, an opportunity to learn or, or a positive gift, right? You, even if you don't get what you want, you have gained something and that's experience. And in those moments, it's created a scholar of, I think, human, of humanity of, you know, I, I probably should have gone to school for, you know, being a philosopher or the, like theologian just for the simple fact that I love the study of, of why humans do what they do. And that's so integrated into being autistic. And I never knew this as a child, right? Because we mimic people. We look yeah. and we want, we, we literally dissect people like a, almost like an AI or a machine, right? Why do you, why did you make a left instead of a right? For us, we make a right. It's the most logical solution. You go right. That's, that's where you need to go. But this person makes a yeah. left, a right and a left. And we need to know why. And so in that pursuit, I find myself very interested in the idea of why we do things, the gamification, the universe. Um, simulation theory, you know, that I love learning and that, that I think is the, is my overall like superpower trait that I get from being autistic is that love and knowledge to learn. Is that a love and knowledge because you want to make sure you're doing the right thing or is it like, is it just a wanting to know more about the world so you understand so you can fit in? I think it's a more, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think it's a little bit on both sides, right? There's, there's yeah. the want, there's the want to fit in and then there's the want to do the right thing. But the want to do the right thing is such a deeper, again, like philosophical question of why you want to do the right thing. I think it probably is more so this idea of wanting to fit in, right? Wanting to yeah, have people who like you want to listen to you, want to talk about things, you know, community. I mean, because that's how I feel when I, you know, we've talked about mimicking a lot so far. And that's how I feel when I go into like, a queer space. I feel like I have to be hyper masculine, hyper broy, which is not my personality at it's all. It's so interesting like, because I'm the opposite. I am naturally masculine, and I get told constantly that I am toxic or I'm this or I'm that based off of other people's perceptions of my physical my physical being. And so when yeah. I go into a queer space, I have to like tone down being masculine. I have to be like, yeah, girl, let's do it, you know, or I don't get treated yeah. well by the people I know in my life because I surround myself with all sorts of different people. I'm, I'm much more inclusive than I find the people around me allow, allow themselves to be right. Yeah. And that's I mean, that I, other, go ahead. I feel that way in queer spaces too. Like I surround myself with, an online community, it really includes the people. But then when I go to a queer space, even a digital queer space, like Scruff or Grinder or wherever it is you go, like it's like you have to put on this persona that I can't conform to because, and it, my think my thinking is if I show them how hyper-masculine I am, then they won't be afraid of the disability and they'll want to hang out with me because I'm, I'm mimicking what they're turned on by, what they're attracted to. But if I show them myself, who's an awkward, like, fucked up, disabled guy that just wants to be loved, then somehow they're going to run away. So I have to put on this, like, performance of masculinity, which is not at all who I am. And I found it, I find so exhausting. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head. But the sad thing is you're right. 
right? Like the, the really sad part of this is that you are not wrong in this feeling because when you go to these spaces, I find that most gay men are not looking to meet you. They're looking to meet whatever they've pictured in their head as a sexual partner and gay spaces, queer spaces have, in my opinion, and in my, you know, time, and I haven't been to all of them. So let me, you know, obviously I don't know the entire gay world, but my experience within queer spaces has been very hyper-sexualized. I've not found what I would imagine happened at, in stone, you know, at Stonewall or in Christopher Street, you know, during, you know, the early days of being an out queer person, which was finding a community to be safe in. Because at this point, we've been out long enough that I feel like we are not fully accepted by the world, of course, but within our own community, we're no longer using subtle codes and fl- hankies and flags and ways to represent what we are. We just go up to someone and we tell them, hey, I'm a raging bottom and I want your dick in me. And at that point, there there's no longer the ability to have that dance and that getting First to know all, each other I and wish personality. I had the confidence to roll up to a guy and be like, I'm a raging bottom. I want your dick in me. I have. I. I would be so mortified to do that. More absolutely mortified to to do that in person. But I. I wish I had that confidence because I have to spend most of my queerness being like. So my disability doesn't bother you, right? Like it's okay that I'm in a wheelchair, right? Like you're still gonna want to hang out with me if I need help, right? Right. Of it, and, and that's why sure it's... they're okay. And that's why, like, it's so fucked up because you you shouldn't have to apologize to somebody for needing to be safe, especially in a community that touts the idea of inclusivity for all people queer. Because yeah. being gay is one of the few things in life, right, that that spans gender, race, religion. You know, there is no there. It's the it is a great equalizer, right? You don't anybody can be gay because it's the way you are you can't see it from the outside you you have to reveal to someone and anybody can be gay and so when we first came out we came out with a very strong message of we're here we're queer deal with it right and i actually feel the same way with disability like i'm here i'm disabled deal with it and that's why my my superpower being autistic allows me to walk into a bar and think like hey like if all you see me of is, is a sexual being, then fine, I'm going to mimic that and be a sexual being for you, right? And yeah. I have to actively tell myself while being in these queer spaces that like, hey, just because the world has decided that or, or we have as queer people have evolved into this hyper-sexualized being, this voice I'm that I'm learning about myself in the last three years allows me to go in and say, Hey, I'm not just a bot- raging bottom who wants to dick in me or a raging top who wants to fuck you. Instead, I'm a human being. And what I really want is to connect with you as a community. And if you don't want that, hey, it's okay. That's your prerogative. Yeah. But I'll keep a much smaller, tighter circle around me of people who respect me and my needs and wants and can understand what my um, boundaries and like ex- like my expectations are because I'm entering into these relationships fully open about my disability and my needs around it you know and how and how has in your you know as a, as a baby autistic person how has like you know coming into those spaces and saying yo i'm queer and autistic i'm this is who i am how have has the queer community 
Um, have they stood up for you or have they been like, what the fuck is this? It's been a, it's been a, um, mixed bag. And I think part of it is that I was diagnosed very at the, right at the beginning of pandemic. Fun. Um, of course, it, it, which, which honestly blessing, you know, it, the pandemic has, awful as it was for the world, as awful as it was for a lot of things, it actually ended up being an incredible moment for me to stop because I had spent years and years as an entrepreneur owning multiple restaurants, bed and breakfasts, you know, opening hotels and being consulted for like 27 high end, like restaurant properties, nonstop in New York city. Dude, I should help you do that, but make things accessible. We should, we should oh, talk to trust me. The, but the problem, they don't care. I, you know what? I left yeah, that business true. because they don't, they they don't. don't care. True. They don't care. And true. customer service and service in general is becoming less and less for the capitalist reasons that I could talk about in a million years. But the, you know, at the end of the day, being queer and being autistic and getting diagnosed in the spectrum or di- being diagnosed um, as autistic during the pandemic, oh, a lot of facets. Um, was a little bit of a blessing because I was able to really focus. Like there was nothing else to do, but look at myself. I had to be in a place and be so introspective. There was nothing to distract myself. There were no clubs to go out to. I came to Oregon, to Portland, because I had a massive leg injury that actually kept me from walking for a year, which helped me feel very empathetic to the world around me and understand what it's like. Thank you. Oh yeah, it was very hard. I came here as somebody whose family's died and doesn't have a lot of support, um, uh, basically like a foster sister, a good friend of mine, let me live on her couch with her and her daughters. And she would help me get in the shower. They would help me make dinner. You know, I had support from people around me and it made me realize how quickly if I didn't and something had happened, I would be on the street or I would be in a state run home or I would have to figure something out, you know? And in that introspection, I, I, Came to Oregon. I got healthcare through the state because they have a state, pretty state run, uh, a pretty well state run program called OHP. Uh, I signed up immediately for mental health services because I knew it was something that I'd been not paying attention to and sort of putting on the back burner. And I started with kind of a state run healthcare program that, you know, did well enough. It's definitely not very cognitive therapy or deep analysis, but it gave me a space to talk to someone. And through those talks, they were like, Hey, why don't we do a personality test real quick? And so we did one and then we did it. Yeah. Then we did another one and then we did a third one and they were like, Hey, um, yeah, you might be autistic. (laughs) They were like, you know, we can't do this over the phone really like as well, but like the, yeah, like, this all points to you being neurodivergent and autistic more than having PTSD from your childhood traumas, you know? And was that like, I know when a lot of people get diagnosed, like there's a sense of relief. They start going back and looking at like, there are all these moments in their life where they felt like they didn't fit and going, Oh, it makes sense. Now I understand that. How did that feel for you? Amazing. You know, it definitely was such a comfort, but it didn't ever have to translate into the queer space because there was no queer space to go to. Right. I didn't have to go, okay, how am I going to now be autistic at an orgy? Because that's all that's happening. Or how am I going to go to a dance party where there's loud music lights and, you know, 700 guys, I don't know. How am I going to deal with that? 
None of those were really questions that I had to worry about. And that ended up being a blessing, a huge blessing because the energy it takes to worry about how you're making other people feel in a club or how you're making other people feel in any space is energy. Oh, you're tell taking me about away. it. Oh girl. I'm sure for you, it's totally different. Wait. It, you know, like, like for me, it's all internal, right? It's all, I can go dance and move in my body, but I'm literally looking around internally having a deep panic attack, but forcing myself to be in that panic attack because I think that's what everyone else is feeling. Right. Yeah. Well, imagine that same feeling, but you're not able to, you're in a wheelchair. Oh, So yeah, me too. But like, you know, I'm looking around the room and somebody in a wheelchair being like, are they looking at me? Are they afraid of me? Are they, why is no one going to talk to me? And so when I go into a queer space, like I have the same anxiety, but it's amplified, not more or less than yours, but in, in a different way of like, they can see me and they know that I'm this alien in the room and they know that I'm this person with three heads and they know that I'm not like them. And I have to, to, be hypersexual so they'll notice me and like i've been to a couple orgies it's i I don't ever want to have the experience again not that it wasn't fun but the overwhelmingness of like oh my god how do i relax here how do i how do i calm down when all these like all these other people could be with each other and not notice me what do i do like all this pressure to be like this archetype of queerness that i'll never be and so learning to let go of that for me has been really hard, but super valuable. And I think that's what not being, not having the ability to go out into the queer space while I discovered myself and not just for a short time, right? I had years, years where there was nothing going on where I had to literally focus on myself or there would be nothing to focus on and yeah. not, you know, that allowed me to sort of, like, I think it ripened, <laughs> you know, allowed me to sort of f- form myself for a few years and figure out what I needed and wanted. And now that the queer spaces are opening again, I don't feel any pressure to be at them. Like, in, legitimately, I don't participate as much as I used to. But also, I'm in my 30s now, right? In my 20s, it was fun to go out. It was great to be up all night. I could wake up and go to work the next day. But there's two things that I'm discovering in my um, <clears throat> diagnosis and learning about how to be an autistic person and learning what I need for myself is really simply that I owe more of my energy to me and not to those people around me. And that I, the self-confidence that comes in this is, is life-changing because I always grew up as somebody that didn't have enough or wasn't enough. Yeah. And now I have, I, I, also should note that I've, while in Oregon, met an amazing partner and now fiance. His name is oh, Noah. Thank you did so I, much. Did I know you were engaged? I don't know. I just, I don't know if I knew that. By the, time this, com- by the time this comes out, we'll have announced it. <laughs> so nobody That's will be surprised. Cool. Yeah, we'll be announcing it on Thanksgiving. So. Oh, yay. Well, that's amazing. And, and, and Lahayam, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, that, but I mean, Having him, no worries, having him in my life also has made a big difference because he is very supportive and very outspoken and very stable and very wonderful and has given me everything that I didn't have growing up or even in New York, which is somebody who just loves me. He doesn't ask me to change my mind. He doesn't ask me to be a different person. We work through 
our challenges and how to be in a better relationship. So that Maslow's hierarchy, like, you know, that, that you need to have to really develop. Yeah. Right. And growing up, I, at the very beginning, didn't have any of that. I, you know, my, I didn't have a home till I was four. My family died when I was eight and I didn't really have a social structure because I didn't even know I was autistic. So nobody was teaching me how to create real relationships. And it wasn't until I'm 33 years old in Portland, Oregon, away from the family, the home, the community, and everything I built in New York. And I came here and I was literally what would be considered rock bottom. You know, I, I, from a leg injury, couldn't walk. I had no money. I had no friends. I was living on someone's couch. And it was because I, I couldn't walk in this emergency in America makes you destitute in three weeks, you know, three pay periods. But I had a very small support group that allowed me to live on their couches while I recovered. And I came to Portland with like $500 in my pocket. But here I got it, got my, um, got my diagnosis. And in that diagnosis, I was able to look at myself without any queer spaces and it's weird thinking back about how active and how outspokenly queer and gay I was in New York, but didn't feel like I had any friends and then I, or relationships or stability. And I come to Portland where that entire pressure and sort of uh, thought process that comes with that community was taken out. And I was able to just be me. I started getting happier. I started focusing on my physical health and my mental health. I started just talking to people online because there was nowhere else to communicate because of COVID. I yeah, was on the app. I was on the apps, but I kept the re- communication very, Hey, I'm new to Portland. I don't know anyone. I just want to be friends. 98% of those people blocked or stopped talking to me. And there was oh, like, people are the worst. especially gay people, unfortunately in that, well, that setting. You know, gay on the apps means I want to be friends, but also suck your dick five seconds after I've known you. Well, but it was also a pandemic. So you're not allowed to, right? There was, there was this understanding that like you couldn't meet people because you were being socially irresponsible and dangerous to, to those in our community or our friends and family groups who are disabled or have immunocompromised or could get dead because of this. Just because I'm not doesn't mean that I should go out with you off of an app, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in these apps, try like in these apps, trying to like also navigate this. Like, hey, I don't want to have sex with you because one, I'm not looking that in my life, but two, pandemic, and there were only a few people that would talk to me, and this one guy just kept talking to me, and he, you oh, know, after nice. yeah, after six months, was like, oh, by the way, I'm a paramedic, and I just got immunized. And I was like, come over right now, <laughs> and you know, after six months of getting six months of getting to know each other and getting to be with each other and without this, you know, wanting to have sex, he came over and it was for me, love at first sight fireworks. So having that person in my life, I know I'm really lucky in that aspect and having this person in my life and having now understanding of my mental health, having a person who loves me and treats me with care and respect and finding that I do have a support system, you know, that treats me like a family and I was, had money in my pocket from the distribution checks from our country. I felt powerful. I felt good. Right. A couple yeah. years later, a couple years later with more therapy, a lot of hard work, I opened up a community based cookie dough company where we sell ready to bake cookie dough within seven I've farmers markets in dough. Portland. And you know? I want it to come to Toronto so much. 
Portland's best cookies. Um, you know, we are taking a little bit of a breath in the middle of winter while the markets are slow, but we'll be back in spring in local markets and hopefully someday in grocery, grocery shelves. But that let me learn a lot about our community of business people here in Portland. And I was able to meet, meet people who weren't queer or maybe they were, it wasn't really important, I should say, because what we were there to do was to talk about business and to support each other on an entrepreneurial level. And in the same aspect, I was meeting people within farmer's markets and having a safe place within my little 10 by 10 tent, where I got to talk about what I wanted to talk about, which was cookies. You got to info dump about cookies. Right. And 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 that was it, right? That was the end of our interaction. I didn't have to explain who I was or anything like that, but I gained confidence. And it was a couple months ago when I was in therapy and I realized, holy crap, I'm not depressed. Like I'm not depressed. And, and, and you know, it That's seems like such, statement. it's such a, such a simple statement. But for me as somebody who has been not realizing that I was in an, you know, probably a man, slightly manic depressive state my entire life because of being born with PTSD and then being undiagnosed as autistic and having to deal with all of the things that come from being basically an orphan, I didn't get to develop me. So at 36 years old, I go, holy crap, I'm a great person. I have great moral values. I treat people in my life with love, care, and respect. I'm a hard worker who's now becoming financially stable. Holy crap, like, not only am I enough, I'm, I'm, I'm more than enough. Like, I, as people should like me. I'm valuable for me. I don't need to mimic anyone else because I've just spent the last three years in a world where I didn't have outside people to teach me to mimic. And I created a person that is loved, is successful and has everything they need. So, so in, not- a, in a in a way, in a sort of, and correct me if you don't agree with this, but in a way the autism diagnosis sort of saved your life. It did. And that's why I can't, that's why it's so hard for me to say, Oh, I'm disabled because it's, for me, it's, it's not a disability. It's an enlightenment. And uh, now I, know the person I am and the tools I need. But I also look at people, okay, and so to understand why I say it's a, a superpower, it's also important to understand that the spectrum of neurodivergency is 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 vast, right? Oh yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's vast. And it's an ocean. And I, you know, am one who has gotten some of the better parts and some of the worst parts, but I now I'm learning to to use those, right? So Weirdly, I have insane senses. Like my, all five of my senses are absolutely insane. Like I, the temperature raises by one degree in our house and I'm like sweating. And my partner is just like, what are you talking about? You know, the, the refrigerator turns on and I have to turn the TV up or like turn off, go stop the the fan running in a room two doors down because I hear it. And he's like, you're crazy you know, in the nicest way. He's like, you're just like, he, he understands that these are not problems and he helps me. He, he's, he has gone out of his way to make sure he eats quieter or doesn't try to talk to me in a different room because he gets it. But in those superpowers, I have 2010 vision. I have incredible hearing. I see, I smell, I taste, which is why I love cooking so much, but I have shit ability to deal with anxiety, stress, or anything that makes me spike, right? I have an autistic episode. I have an energetic outburst. And I have to, and originally I didn't know what it was and I blamed everyone around me for it. And now I excuse myself. 
I do what I need to do to take care of myself. And I come back as that strong individual that I've learned through all this therapy as being confident and valuable. Okay. Well, let me change it for you. You said, you know, your superpower changed, saved your life. What if, what if it was, what if it was your, your disability saved your life? Like, doesn't that, I mean, you can, that can eventually have a positive spin to it. No. Yeah. And the thing is, I already don't look at the word disability as a negative word, right? I just, I think it's a, I think it's a categorical word. And that's one of those things about being autistic, right? Is there's not as much emotion attached to these things. So like when you, when you, you know, want me to be able to say disability more than superpowers, the thing is, it's hard because I don't, disability and superpower are not a good or bad thing to me. Right. Because yeah. in my head, there just isn't that same emotional connection to things that aren't intrinsically connected to my day to day experience. It's a, particularly in a more um, tangible being. Right. So like these, these sort of ideas uh, and philosophical ideas, which is why I love studying people don't become as, as, you know, people go, oh, why are you angry? And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm just talking to you about logic, right? I tell people oftentimes, like, the emotional side of this conversation is is for neurotypical people. My neurodivergency yeah. makes, is more like a filing system and classification system. So, like, it's hard for me to classify myself as having they, a disability. So you don't put emotions to disability necessarily. No, not at all. Because I don't, when you tell me you're disabled, it doesn't make me like or or dislike you more, right? If I saw you in the world, I, mean, I it should make you like me the most because I'm the greatest. But I, y- your personality and your interaction with me makes you the greatest for me, right? Because now you're entering that tangible world where I get to put an emotional connection to our interactions. Yeah, yeah, and and that allows me to say my friend Andrew, who's disabled or is a disabled person, is awesome, right? But I wouldn't, if I'm talking to my friends about you, I'm not going to label you as anything other than Andrew because your disability isn't what defines you to me, right? And it doesn't create an emotional connection to you because your wheelchair doesn't make me feel upset about your being in it. If you treat me like an asshole while you're in a wheelchair, then I'm going to be like, that disabled guy's a dick. (laughs) <laughs> you know but at least you, at least you said i was just saying that at least you well because because then because then it has an emotional connection to me right <laughs> like it makes that, that 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 anger makes me want to do that so it's hard for me to be like my disability saved my life what what did save my life is the knowledge right the diagnosis that i'm different so, because i'm thinking about titles for the show and I'm thinking, like, my diagnosis saved my life. It was a pretty good title. For yeah, we, right. Or my di- or my diagnosis made me a superhero. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I'll workshop it. I'll workshop it and see. What hey, I. That's why I'm not a producer. That's why. I, that's listen. The other thing that I've learned in this in this diagnosis is like, I I can focus on the things that I'm good at, and maybe naming this episode isn't that thing. And so I don't need to worry or get emotional about it, right? I, it, who cares? Like at the end of the day, no, you get all, be, you're the star, and I'm. The I guy get to just, you. and that's what I love yeah. about it. And that's that's how I get to interact with the world now. Is I don't have to go, oh God, what do I need to say? What do I want to be? Or what do they need me to mimic? I get to be like, you know what? Cool. I'm not a guy who names podcasts. <laughs> what do I care? 
And that's, that's, that's the disability, the superpower, the knowledge and the diagnosis that gives me all the power and self-confidence because I'm not trying to be anyone else anymore. I'm just being me. I mean, well, that's the fucking title right there. I'm not trying to be anyone else anymore. Um, how, now I wanted to ask you, do, how, what, let me try to, let me try words. So a lot of us with disabilities, especially those who are neurodivergent, deal with a lot of ableism in, in our lives. Have you, is there been a point in your life where you've experienced ableism recently in the last three years since you <laughs> kind of accepted this diagnosis that you could yeah. share? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's that fine line because like, let's think ableism is, you know, sort of this idea of people trying to, trying to tell you that like you, you're choosing to be or like that you're not really or you, sh- you can do things you're just not trying as hard as other people. And it's definitely, it's a fine, it's this like fine sliver since I've been trying to tell people who I am. It's been really divisive which is really interesting to me. Um, you know, it, it goes one of two ways, right? I'll tell people like right away. So I have two, two groups of people. I have people who I'm just meeting people who have known me for a long time. So let's first talk about the people who have known me for a long time, which is interesting to get that kind of um, ableism from people who you've known from a long time and who have expressed that they love you for who you are and care for you because you've been there. And so you say, Hey, I found out this news. Like, and it explains so much, like, I'm autistic. And they're like, no, you're not. Like, I've known you your whole life. You're not. And you're like, no. I hate that. You're like, no, I, I am. And, and for me, it's really great because, like, now I don't have to pretend to be what you think I am. I want to tell you who I really am. And they get, yeah. like, really weird about this and they get defensive. And you're like, wait a minute. No, no, stop. Like, I'm not telling you you're bad because you've treated me this way. What I'm telling you is that treating me this way is something that I've allowed you to do because I didn't know who I was and I don't want you to treat me this way anymore because it is bad for me. And suddenly they hear these, all these ideas of like, I'm a bad guy, right? I'm a bad person for not treating you the way that you should have been treated. And that is, that's like the weird ableism that I, yeah, it's because they can't, they don't, nobody wants to be seen as the bad guy and nobody knows what ableism is. So they don't realize they did something wrong because no one's taught them about that, what that is. And then, well, when but you- also contextually, they can't contextually, the ableism doesn't exist until I, I knew that I could be ableized. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I always thought yeah, I yeah, was just yeah. a weird person who had, who had PTSD and couldn't connect with others. And now that I'm telling them like, Hey, you know how like we've always had weird, a weird relationship where like, sometimes I'm like, oddly argumentative or seem like I'm cold and distant, but I'm, we don't get why we're not connecting. Guess what? Here's an answer. And for some reason in that answer, it makes them uncomfortable and they get weird. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. Like I'm not uncomfortable, but like, here's what they get weird. You're also, you're also exposing to them that you're disabled. And we in our society, unfortunately, disability is this like horrible, different thing. So all of a sudden they thought they were sitting across from their friend, but they're now sitting across from this, like, autistic person, person. Yeah, that yeah they don't know they have no idea and also the, our views on what autism looks like are very skewed and very like our media yeah. representation of what autism is is wrong so when people see um you as you 
they're like, well, why don't you, why are you an alien with three heads? And you're like, I'm just, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's been, it's been pretty interesting. My immediate, my immediate family has been, it's been a journey to say the least, but a journey of, for many reasons, again, the pandemic and being distant, but for the most part, my most immediate family has really gone behind and we've had a lot of really long, like two hour long discussions where I'm like, you know, where I can cry, where I can be upset, where I can be honest and tell them like, look, your ego and your need to do things your way are going to hurt me as a person because like you need to stop doing things your way and understand that, as you say, like my disability is not going to change. Like this is something that I'm going to have forever. And if you don't help deal, deal with it, that's fine. Like I can't control you, but you're going to lose out on the person I am, which is a really awesome person. And so my family knows I'm an awesome person. Right. And so they're like, Oh crap, we better step in line. And my family is very successful, like VPs of industry, you know, celebrity, you know, movie designers, and they're busy people who have Emmys, who have New York times articles. Yeah, I mean, well, there people, I'm the black sheep of the family for sure. And I'm one who used to own four properties in the East Coast, right? <laughs> but to, to have them and to t- tell them like, hey, if you don't change your behavior, you know, we're not going to have the relationship that I need. And to have them actually do it, amazing, right? Have them change the way they interact with me, have them be much more soft in trying to tell me if I'm even- offending them. Yeah, not even necessarily like full on change, but willing to listen to you and you say, you know what, this now that I understand this, and we're gonna have to try it this way. Can we try it this way? Like, right. I find with a lot of things around disability, it's not so much that they have to do it a hundred percent; it's that they have to just try a hundred percent. And that's what I keep telling them. Like, look, the one thing is, and this happens with me and my partner a lot, right? We're learning how to interact with me as the person I'm learning I am, and. My family, they're, because they're very successful and their structure and system has worked so long for them, it, they don't need to question it, right? And here I am, a great disruptor, saying like, hey, look, I get like your system works for you, but I'm not you and your system has actually secretly been fucking me over my whole life. And I need yeah. you to have a little bit more understanding of, of distributing our family social you know, wealth and our own personal feelings. So that way I get a little bit more of what I need because like I've supported you all my whole life and you're all really successful. And now it's my time that I'm confident and have what I need to get the same laureates and the same achieving of success that you've done because I want it, not because I want to mimic it. Right. I mean, I think there's something really cool about you being an entrepreneur and doing what you do. And I think you should, again, you don't have to do this right away, but I think eventually you should, say like i'm an artistic business owner i like I'm a i am and the new the new business that i've started is really a culmination of all these things but you know i want to go back to you know this this ableism my family's been really great for it the people i've known for a long time um the the closer ones whereas the distant ones especially ones that might be on social media like facebook or instagram or twitter oh, yeah the ones that aren't in my day-to-day life or in my inner circle that only see things through the rosy and you know I shouldn't say rosy filter because I am pretty um open on Facebook I try to be very transparent about my 
ups, my downs. Oh, oh, I've seen I've seen your posts. You go, you're just like me. You go all over the place. I'm like, here's the truth. Here's how I feel. Boom, here it is. Well, look, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to to further this idea that what we put out in the media is reality. If it's not, don't tell yeah. me that your life is amazing. You travel all the time and you have great biceps. If what you're doing is opening up credit cards, have no savings account and do fucking steroids. Like do not market false hope to me. And if I want to be a better part of this system, I need to live in the tenants I want done to me. So when I'm on Facebook and social media, I try to be as real, honest, and truthful as possible. And if someone doesn't like it, that's okay because I'm awesome (laughs) and they don't have to be part of my life. The people who around me (laughs) are right. And so with the family that's on social media and they see me posting things about, you know, being on the spectrum, being disabled, being autistic, they, that's when I get really weird comments. Like I've known you your whole life. That's crazy. You're not autistic. And I'm like, all right, you met me four times when I was up until 13 and you were a child. So you may not be the person yeah. that was right to this. So, Perhaps yeah, like, you can accept my truth and my reality in this situation. And I, so how, how does ahead. all of that, like, let's shift a little bit. How does all of, like, how does your autism, and again, you're a baby autistic person. So how does, how does this newfound identity for you impact, like, your relationship with your partner, impact, like, your sex life impact all those things yeah well it's it's twofold and you know i don't mean to backtrack a little bit but the other part of that ableism is his family's awful to me like just terrible they've expressed multiple times that like they think i'm gaslight they've used the word gaslighting them as an autistic person that i'm that i have no disability that i use it yeah oh no yeah yeah, they said I use it as a crutch to be a bad person or to do things that they find offensive to them. Well, and what does he think about all of that? Does he? He has no agreeance. He is so mad and so angry and so disappointed in their behavior when it comes to me that, you know, they don't even well, know where. Then you better have the biggest fucking disabled wedding. <laughs> but you better have like ramps and wheelchairs. And right. I mean, the biggest. <laughs> I mean, the unfortunate thing and the unfortunate truth of it is like that part has been really, really sad and really depressing and has been an unfortunate part of our relationship, but it has pushed us together really, really hard and has made us realize our bond is so amazing. And that's why we actually ended up getting engaged. So like his family, you know, we had told them we were thinking about getting married. We've talk to them in length about our plans and our lives and what we want to do. You know, when I met them, I was starting my cookie dough business, which became successful. So we've thought that we've kind of shown them the life that we're creating. And we've just found that his family just thinks that, you know, I'm kind of full of shit, you know, that these are all excuses that I'm giving them because I somehow want to be a bad person but the weird thing is that we've only shown them what an amazing person I am, you know, baking every dessert for every family gathering, birthdays and special occasions, planning Mother's Days and, you know, going and flying to California and meeting Noah's grandparents, you know, really becoming part of his family, taking his brother out in L.A. while he was at college to have dinner and just to make sure he's like had some family time really going above and beyond to like show his family that I understand the fact that they like don't think you're disabled and that you're gaslighting disability it makes you so angry like fuck up 
that's not it's you don't get particularly to, no. after spending a year ingratiating myself into their lives and being like a model son-in-law hearing these things was insanely hurtful and we i had to sit at a dinner in a public restaurant where his father basically told me that as an entrepreneur i'm it's a scam and that what we need to do is work at a job we hate for 25 years for minimum wage and just save as much money as we can or i'm a bad guy and so my partner is just like okay we're going to take a breath from my family and we're going to go hang out with your family so so we're doing thanksgiving with my family and for christmas we're planning a, a you know a onesie bar crawl with like local like local bars and people from our community and we're just going to move forward with what i'm doing which is building a community that loves and respects me for me and honors my disability and honors the things that i need because i'm a good person and a great guy and i don't need people to tell me i'm garbage anymore well if you need some de facto disabled family members uh yeah. hello hi how are you you're you're always in my family, girl. The the way that this then translates into mine and Noah's relationship is that we are very communicative. We talk about everything. Sometimes we talk a little louder than we want to because we get a little heightened. But he has very much in the last two years that we've been together has worked really hard to not trigger me, which you know sounds can sound like a little bit weird. But, you know, there's just small things that I'm like, hey, can you not talk to me when I'm in the bathroom? Because it, talking through a wall is really hard for me. It, it just creates yeah, a lot of anxiety so and tension. I'm trying to poo. Like, what are you even doing? I'm trying to leave you alone. Well, you know what? If he wants to be in there, he can come in when I'm pooping. That doesn't bother me. But don't talk to me through the door. It just is something that really bothers me. That it, 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 the, the attention, the pulling my attention to a different room where I can barely hear you muffled through a wall it's one of those things where it's like, Hey, that's illogical and inefficient. Just either come in or wait till I come out, you know? So he just doesn't do it. And that's great. And you know, it's small things like that where you're like those small changes show you that somebody really cares about working with your disability for you. Somebody needs to open doors. They need to, you know, be physically responsible for you to like, get me undressed. If we're going to do stuff, they need to get me out of the wheelchair. There's a whole thing that goes with that. and my, my, my needs and my, the necessities that I have are so different because they're much more psychological than physical. Yeah. You know, it's, I need to feel really safe. I need to feel really loved and wanted and, you know, not ever feel a moment of self doubt because I can spiral so easily into my own traumas of the past. And then yeah. being autistic makes it hard for me to get out of that. Right. Yeah, I and need so all that's, the same things. I need all the same things and I need to get undressed. I need to get right. So. And so my challenges are, you know, haven't been that hard. And, you know, again, it go back in New York and back in my previous, I think, you know, lives, I was much more sexually active with other people, much more into this idea of like everyone around me was like polyamory is the thing, or you know, yeah, you're with your partner, but you can sleep with whoever you want. And in the need to mimic that queer culture, I never made quality relationships. Now I'm with someone who doesn't, who doesn't have the same like lustful desires, I think. And it's not because he's not a sexual person. He's very sexual and very fun, but it's just because he finds me to be enough. And if we do ever want to have a third partner or go to some sort of sexual event, it's always with the understanding that like, if we don't like it, it doesn't matter how much it costs or how much time and energy we put into getting there. We'll turn around and leave 
because we are enough for each other. And that has made me a much more powerful individual because I feel like I am enough for the people around me, for the world around me. And I'm succeeding with my disability, which makes it a superpower. I also love that since I've said to you at the beginning of the show, it's like, maybe you should say disabled more. You've said it like eight or nine times. And I appreciate that because it's, of course, I'm really good at listening and I'm really good at integrating what people need for themselves because I get it. I need other things too. And if saying the word disability and saying disabled and utilizing it helps my community in a way that I don't understand, it doesn't hurt me to do it. It doesn't yeah. hurt me to use this word more for people around me, right? Like if, if I uh, ask now that you, to call me- Now that you've said it a bunch, like how do, how do you feel about it? Is, it? is it? It's the same for me. It never had an emotional connection. <laughs> like it just, it just isn't, it, 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 I now have a better understanding of how to utilize it. And it's the same for when I be, learned I was autistic, right? I, I first said like, oh, I'm on the spectrum. And people would be like, oh, you know, I, I highly recommend you think about using the word autistic more than on the spectrum, right? And I had to internalize that and figure out why and ask questions and find out from a group of other people why I needed to say it before I was able to make that decision because it doesn't have an emotional response to me. It has a logical response and I need the pro and con list and the logical understanding because one thing that autistic people do is we'll listen to your rules, but if they don't make sense to us, we will not not follow them, right? (laughs) Because they're not logical. Exactly. So like I have no issue saying any word even words that other people might find offensive because for me sometimes they just don't have that connotation someone has to tell me hey buddy do you know that's offensive or like did you know what you said was rude and I'm like thank you so much I had no idea like thank you for telling me like you telling me is amazing like I'm not offended by this (laughs) like I'm sorry um can I ask you a sexy question about autism sure of course how do you think your being autistic affects your like sex life? Um, in the past, it was, you know, I, I think it's kind of a twofold question because I, I don't know what it's like to not be an autistic person with a sex life, right? I, from what I've noticed with other people is I create much more intense emotional connections and yeah, as me I, too. Yes, yeah. And yeah. as I as I understand, neurodivergent people as a whole tend to do that, right? We grab a stranger's hand, and suddenly that we love them, right? It just it just happens. We we connect with people in a way that is emotionally naive, right? And yeah. se- sexual intercourse, unfortunately, can be very predatory. And I think when you're having emotional naivety people are going to use you for the physical wants they have and will tell you that they want to respect your emotional needs because they're getting what they want for themselves at the moment. And this is the same behavior that addiction creates or being an addict does. Right. And so I think it speaks a lot more to other people and the way that they interact with sex and the need to maybe fill a hole or (laughs) an emotional hole (laughs) as well as a physical one. But, uh, you know, we, you know, we see that. And again, being a mimic, I think I was trying to mimic this, like really over sexualization and it just, it didn't do it for me, you know? And I've I realized that if I'm going to classify myself as a sexual being, you know, I'm not gay. I'm not straight. I'm not queer. I'm a demisexual. I 
anything or anyone that I could create a deeper emotional connection with, I feel a sexual chemistry with, right? Like it's not anything. I shouldn't say that, but anyone, any person, you know, I haven't really like my table as much as I love it. doesn't really get me going, but the, (laughs) the sexual chemistry is such an important component to me that when I was younger, I would have sex because I could get a physical reaction. I could get a boner and I would put it in someone and I would enjoy the physical act. But as I get older and also realize with being autistic that what I really want is deeper emotional connection, you know, my, I where I may have slept with anywhere from, you know, two or 300 people a year in New York because the availability of sex is there. And I was a go-go dancer and I worked with in nightlife and I was a good looking guy who made myself emotionally vulnerable for anyone. I mean, you're still a good looking guy. Just, just so we're clear. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But my self-confidence and my boundaries and the, the, the physical needs that I have have changed. Right. And so I'm, I, I, I don't have as much sex as I had in my younger days, but I do not feel like I'm unfulfilled or that I'm not getting what I want. If I have two or three great sexual sessions a week or even a month with my partner, the fulfillment that I get from that emotional connection charges those batteries for a lot longer than hundreds and hundreds of one-off crappy encounters. So learning my diagnosis has made my sex life much like my, the rest of my life, much more enriching and and much more enjoyable. Like, uh, you know, the confidence in the bedroom is there too, because I can't do anything wrong with my partner. He's going to be there when I wake up the next morning. Unlike the guy who leaves directly after we come, puts his pants on and runs out the door without looking in my eye. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, what, yeah. <laughs> like, well, believe me, I've been there. And those are, that's as a disabled person who knew, like I have been with a lot of people where that's been my, that's been our only interaction. And so like, you know, having to mimic that sense of like, it's cool. He blew me and I'll never see him again. It doesn't bother me. But inside I was like, Oh, there's nothing emotionally salient about what we did. And right. Like, and and at that point, are you being are you being someone who is progressing our society, our community, our whether it's queer, whether it's disabled, whether it's neurodivergent, are you answering the call to stop what would essentially be generational trauma? Right? Are you being unintentionally adding to it? Adding to it. And and more so intentionally, right? Because you've made that active decision to allow that behavior to continue to happen. And in these realizations, again, that I'm enough, that I'm awesome, that I don't need to be like, you know, Joe Schmo in order to be amazing, that I can be myself. I also do not feel any necessity to let any sexual partner in my life I'm not interested in, in a deeper way. And that's amazing. And it's been, it's, again, been life-saving, not just life-changing. You're full of like awesome sound bites today. That those all work perfectly. Um, yeah. Since you're a baby autistic person and you're kind of coming into this idea of disability and this idea of all the things, I wanted to give you a chance to like shoot me some questions, ask me stuff about disability, ask me stuff about being a wheelchair user, just let you just talk to another like full fledged disabled person. 
Um, oh man, ask me to do the hardest thing ever. Like this is one of those things that as a, as a autistic person can be really hard. Like even in conversations with people at a table where you're having dinner, I'm the, it's the, it's so hard to do that. Um, but I, I'm really excited to, to try my darndest. Yeah. Try that. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it's so interesting because again, it's that, it's that, I, I highly empathetical to people. Like I instantly want, like love them and want to care for them and be all about them. And growing I mean, up, best friend. What are you even talking I about? know, right? Well, growing up to my grandmother and still is a caregiver. And one of our, one of her, um, clients who I hung out with a lot as a child, her name was Jean. She had multiple sclerosis and I helped. Cool with all of the things that were involved in her life that included a, her lift, uh, you know, changing her clothing, her socks, bedpans, catheters, you know, uh, you know, closet oh, bags. Right. You know? And so th- I think this might also be part of it is like, I- I've seen the world I've seen. I've come from nothing. I've seen people be murdered over food. I've seen people get, you know, walked over as they slept on the ground. You know, your wheelchair doesn't scare me. So it's, you know, my questions are, you know, I want to hear so much more about your day-to-day life because I don't, I never really put myself in that position because I don't go, oh, Andrew's in a wheelchair. What's his life like? The only thing I think is like, Andrew's awesome. And I want to like be more involved. Right. It doesn't really bother me to have to do physical things. So like when you, when you're with people who aren't like me, you know, what is your biggest challenge? Not necessarily in the sexual world. Like, you know, you go to a restaurant with someone and you need help eating, right? You need help getting to the table, moving the chair. Do is it, do you call ahead? Does this person take that rain or do you need to like create that, program for them if i'm going if i'm going on a date with somebody if we're just friends yeah. they, know me and they know i need well, i think yeah you're with someone right okay sorry I'm, if, yeah if we're like on a date then i'll say to them beforehand i'll make a joke like how do you feel about shoving me in my mouth like <laughs> funny and you know i'll make them laugh a little bit about the reality like how do you feel about putting a burger in my mouth they're helping me eat like i make it clear yeah. i don't need that help to make them comfortable but it is really uncomfortable because you have to show them a part of your self that is if they see that they could run away and they, right. they could then tell you that you're too much and they could then tell you like i had a guy once when i was in college he came over for a hookup on the apps it's like not even on the apps before the apps even existed on the website that i found him on he came over and he walked to my house and i was being fed by one of my carriers as he walked in, I said, oh, this is my friend so-and-so. Come in. And he came in and he goes, oh, someone's feeding you? I gotta, I gotta bounce. And I was like, cool, you were, you, you were gonna suck my dick five minutes ago. What happened? Right. changed? And he, so he was like, oh, I didn't realize you were that disabled. I gotta go. Like, That's, you know, the thing is, like, what's messed up about that situation in my opinion is that that's actually not relegated to your disability, right? That's relegated to almost every gay hookup I've ever dealt with is like, it's a control thing, not a, and not so much a respect thing. It's like so many of our, so much of our community deals with their own traumas every day that when they walk in and it, and they have to show 
any bit of compassion, empathy, empathy. Yeah. or care outside of what their own needs are, it disappears. Where in your, you know, you were mentioning that, you know, you have, you know, obviously apps and you used websites in the past. When you're looking for dates or romantic partners, where do you, where do you not necessarily look, but where do you find the best interactions? I mean, I've kind of, the best interactions, I've kind of given up dating per se, yeah. honestly. Like I mostly, when I want to get my rocks off, I'll call my favorite sex worker who I have a pretty good relationship with and I'll book an hour or I'll book a couple hours. Right. Like, you know what? I want to have a good time. I've known you for five years. I trust you. Like, yeah, we're not going to be in a relationship, but we we're friends and we'll all have, I'll have great sex and you'll provide what I need and then we'll all move on. Like I just, at this point being almost 40, it's not that I've given up, but I've, I'm exhausted from trying and always hitting the same wall, hitting yeah. the same wall of like, you're, I can't do with it. I'm too scared. Yeah. And well, so- you know, it's so interesting to hear you say all of these things because in my discussions with gay men in general, it's the parallels are all the same, regardless of their ability to walk, ability to move or disabilities. I'm actually hearing this same parallel everywhere, which leads me to question not us in our bodies and our minds, but our community and the way we're treating each other and the way that we have expectations on each other, which goes back to that idea of how we've changed from a Stonewall riot to you know, circuit parties in the like same space. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you know. Like, even when I was doing Queer as Folk, when I did that show last year. Like, I know, I, that looks so cool. <laughs> it was so fun, but even like, but again, what did they highlight? Sex and, you know, being slutty, which is fine, and I support all that, but, like, wouldn't it have been cool if, you know, they had, an, they had someone who wasn't into, like, DTF right away? Right. Well, and I think this, uh, you know, and this is a much deeper discussion, I think, in sort of gay culture and gay philosophy, as I, I like to call it the queer philosophy, right, is we're also a young culture. You know, we are, we've been around for a long time, but we haven't been able to grow out in the world. And I wonder for you, you know, you you have such an interesting, you know, perspective on all things queer, what you think of what you've seen from maybe when you were a child to how our queer culture has, you know, grown now, do you see, see a saving grace at the moment or are you feeling as disposed or like despondent as I am? I mean, I think I'm right there with you in the boat of despondence. I just think that like, we had a chance during the pandemic to be responsible and to, to like, to, and we have we had a chance during you know the monkeypox stuff that's happening right now to be to like you know change the narrative of how we talk about queerness unfortunately you know the apex people in our community want to keep showing like yeah we're fuckable yeah we're sexy all this stuff but like i feel like if we took a step back from this sex the sex part and looked at more of a connection our communities will be a lot more connected than they are right now. Yeah. I think that's definitely a grassroots movement that, you know, we need to figure out again and look at, and, you know, like if we were to switch that around and, you know, look at the same thing, I guess, in gay in straight culture, 
I think what we're just finding is that as more and more data comes out, right, we have more and more gay men, more people coming out, younger, younger people, older people, we're getting more data. I kind of wonder to me, you know, is it that we are having less great guys or is it just that we're being flooded with more, more basic men? And my hope in the future is simply that we, you know, everybody realizes that all, all, uh, boats rise with a high tide and that we eventually just start holding everyone to a higher regard and yeah. stop, stop letting people get like passes for treating people poorly because they look amazing, you like, know, or because yeah, they or have I, that. Go ahead. Like I can't agree with you more on that. And I think like, you know, my dick rises when you would give me, like I would much rather an emotional boner than a physical one to be going on. It's like, if somebody gets me excited emotionally, then I'm like, Oh, that's much more exciting than, like meeting you in a back alley or meeting you at the dark room of a club and sucking your dick and then never seeing you again. Like I'd much rather build that friendship out. Well, and is it, and is, is that experience of meeting someone in a dark club or having that, you know, taboo or um, adventurous hookup, is that something that is necessary anymore? Because we now have spaces and we have the ability to meet and not be arrested and not be, you know, ostracized. Are we, are we holding on to a enjoyable relic of a past, um, a past idea that, right? Well, this, this idea was a weapon. Like we, we wanted to be out there and be outspokenly queer and sexual because it was a way to say like, Hey, you've ignored us and pushed us away for so long. This is now in your face. But now we're we're doing the same thing in the disability community of like, Talking about disabled people fucking. Exactly. Yeah. And those are the discussions I'm more interested in, right? I don't care about your, you know, porn star celebrity who has a hundred million followers telling me about how great their sex life is because that's okay. Great. Like I can just assume that like, great. It's not interesting. What is interesting is you. I've slept with one or two of them. It's not that they're nice people, but whatever. Listen, I've slept with a lot of them, and in the time that I have slept with a lot of porn actors, very few of them are people that I've stayed in touch with them, because at the end of the day, the interaction was solely quid pro quo. It was designed to make money or content or, you know, it, you know, it wasn't like, hey, I want to hang out, because when you turn something that is a carnal and sexual pleasure into a commodification commodity, when you commodify what is human interaction, which is what the entire world is focused on right now, then you're not going to have great human interactions. Yeah. Yeah. And like I've done, I've done porn. I've done, I've done stuff, but I do it with a very specific lens. I say like, we need to see disabled people having great sex and enjoying themselves. So when I do it, Yes, it's commodified, and yes, it's porn, and all those things. But also, like, I did a porn a few about a year and a half ago with somebody where all we did was sit on my bed and talk for five minutes, and then they blew me, and that was it. And I was like, this is really cool because it's showing there's an emotional component to this, too, that we need. Well, and I think that that's also a wonderful, you know, sense of activism, right? Like, you, like when we started off as queer people in a closet, 
every day that we breathed and existed was a sense of activism, right? You were out there fighting the good fight by existing. And I think that now is the time to focus on the subsets within our community, disabled people, black people, trans people, people who have not had the same attention either in media or even within our community. It's, it's privilege and entitlement that, you know, I am a cisgendered looking white dude, right? Like I can get away. I can pass as being straight. You know, I, I, I have all of those things in my life, which has allowed me to, you know, be treated at least with a, like an iota. That's partly why when, when you tell your friends and family that you're autistic, they go, Oh, no, you're not. Like, right. Exactly. Like you're, you're, you're like, us. Yeah. We, we've seen, like, yeah, you're everyone, you're every other guy. Right. And I think that we need to get away now from focusing on the mainstream queer attitude and like, okay, like grinder and scruff and great. Like everyone knows that. Like even the straight people know what grinder and scruff is. Yeah. How about we, how about we let them know what ballroom is? How about we let them know about all of our brothers and sisters that are being killed and disappearing from Baltimore every fucking day and nobody knows about it. How about we focus less on telling everyone we're gay and focus on telling everyone that we need safety in our entire community. And yeah, we, this, this gaslight and the smoke screen that we create in our sexuality is now hindering us. It used to be something that was an art and a piece of activism, but now it's, it's no longer that it's a, it's a shackle. It's a weight that's holding our community down from evolving and creating a personality that is truthfully what it needs to be, which is an altruistic. And I know this is a bad word in some circles, but more socialistic idea of community, right? We need to take care of all of the ships because as the water rises, so do all of the ships, right? Those are some big, I agree with you. Those are some big fighting words that people are going to listen and be like, water. Look, and and that's okay because I'm not here for that. I'm not. I'm not here for the person who is able-bodied. I'm not here for the person who has all of the tangible items they've ever needed and all of the psychological needs met that let them be successful. I'm here to enter discussions for people who, who don't have this voice, right? People who are still, still sad, still depressed, still hurt, still in the closet, don't know what to talk about. Don't know what to say. I'm on my own journey and of discovery and illumination. And if I can light a path for other people to ask questions and talk about what they need. But more importantly, for people who had no idea that these groups even existed to see them for the first time, then that's what I want to talk about. Right. And that's what we should talk about. Um, This has been such a fun conversation. We've gone all over the place and I really enjoyed it. Did you have any final things you wanted to chat about that we haven't yet? No, I just want to thank you uh, for giving me a space to talk and chat with you and learn a lot. So well, we you should, know, thanks we so much. We should do it more offline. It was so it was really a lot of fun, and I'd love to stay in touch. Of course, yeah. Let me know whatever you want. I'm always there. Um, how do the people who are listening tell us a little bit how they can support your business and how do they follow you and support you and all that stuff? Oh yeah, I kind of forgot. We I'm actually super excited. One of the things that has been really incredible both with my partner and with my diagnosis and getting my mental health in check is really becoming a stronger entrepreneur. And my newest project is so cool and I'm so excited about it. It's called Hidden Oasis. Uh, or you can find us on all social media and website at hiddenoasis.space because we are not a dot com. We are a space welcome for people. 
And so the idea, yeah, I've, I've combined a lot of the things that I've learned in my life, both throughout being autistic, but also just be by having anxiety and stress to create a space that we're calling a sensory experience. It sort of takes all the best parts of the science and art of relaxation and combines them into a very unique experience. You'll basically um, enter a room that is shut off from all the overstimulation of the world around you. So there's no windows. It's um, insulated from sound and weather. When you go in, you control the temperature. It has aromatherapy, four different soundtracks, light therapy, touch therapy, tactile sensation, all at once while you sit in a um, AI-driven massage chair that suspends you weightlessly. So basically what we've done is we've taken away any um, uh, anxiety or panic triggers that come from your um, both your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. So you won't have any joint pains or well, you sh- I shouldn't say you won't, but you'll be relieved from the pain and pressures of your body. And then at the same time, every other sense from your vision, hearing, smell, all get relaxed at the same time. So you basically are getting an organoleptic experience where all five senses get taken from fight or flight to complete neutrality. You can book the room for anywhere from 15 minutes or an hour or for the whole day if you want. And in the room, it's contactless. When you arrive, you get your choice of a boxed water or a a calming tea. They can be hot, cold, or room temperature. The temperature will be set to what you've asked for. And you walk in using your four-digit pin and the room's ready for you. You can bring your attendant or a caregiver because not only is there a massage chair, but there's a space for them to sit while you enjoy the experience as well. Um. So how do we... <laughs> So how do we get me out there to try this? This is what I want to know. Well, follow us on Instagram, hiddenoasis.space, and we should be open by the time this is running. Let's get you down here and get you in. I would love that. And I'd love to talk to you more off the air about how to make it even more accessible and how I can help do that. I would love that. I mean, at this point, I'm really excited because uh, the space that that I've leased for this is completely ADA accessible, first floor. Even as I showed you, the bathroom is completely ADA accessible. And we are talking about right now looking for a lift. So that way, anybody who's in a wheelchair has there can, we do have an on site concierge that can help with any of these things. But if they have an attendant, they would be able to use the room completely autonomously from us yeah, yeah. having to come in. Because for us, it's also, you know, a health issue, right? You don't have to interact with anyone other than your bubble. Because when you come in, the bubble's been sealed for you. And then when you leave, we come in and clean and sanitize the entire space and set it up for the next guest. And you don't even have to interact with another human if you don't want. Oh my God, that's amazing. I, I, that sounds really cool. It sounds super futuristic. Uh, I really want to help you to learn more about it later and help you make it more accessible. But I'll make sure that all of that stuff is in the show notes. This was such a, fun conversation um thank you so much for being here it was so fun awesome thanks andrew uh if you ever need anything let me know i'm here for you oh well we will be in touch 
immediately following this. So great. Right. Uh, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I was, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening and shining a bright light on disability stories with me. If you want to follow all my work and see all my links and all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head over to my new website, aagerza.com. And all my stuff is there. My social links are there. My website is there. My podcast is there. Everything is there. And you can follow along with the show that way. If you want to leave a review for the show, please do so wherever you get your podcast. It really does help keep the bright lights shining on this show. If you want to support the show financially and get the show one day early, completely ad-free, as well as a shout-out on the air, consider pledging as little as $1 a month or $5 a month or more by going to patreon.com slash disability after dark. Stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, and we'll shine a bright light on disability stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Cripple & Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2023